doing the Star Wars films is, you know, every time you do one, it's it's like a new adventure. It's like um, running the Indy 500 every year. I mean, just every time you do it, even no matter how many times you've done it, it's the same challenge. And there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to pull it off at all. But the process of writing is not easy, uh, and it takes a great deal of concentration and get into a particular place and you stay there for a while and, and then you get as you move around in that world you can sort of see the things that are going on and it's not something you can pop in and out of that easily you know I'm sort of running the story over my mind all the time and, you know and sort of contemplating various scene fits what would it be like if we did this what if I started there what if you know uh, because there's point of view there's a lot of mechanics that have to happen uh, and then there's uh, you know the entertainment values which is you know, is it funny? Does it move things forward? Is it exciting? All those kinds of issues. So I'm finally glad to be working on my own again. You know, I don't feel a lot of pressure. It's kind of fun. I mean, I'm, having, I'm getting to do a lot of research, which I love to do, and uh, I'm getting a chance to think, you know, things are quiet. It's very contemplative, and it's a great change from where I've been. Episode number 153 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. We're back from holiday break, and we are ready to begin Phantom Menace Year. Phantom Menace Year. Phantom Menace Year. needed to recharge and get ready for phantom menace year <laughs> there's a lot going on in 2019 but phantom menace year might be might be the biggest part of it. it's going to take a lot of energy could potentially drain us uh, all of our midichlorians are going to be all used up by the end of the year <laughs> uh it's hard to believe it's been what 20 years well i mean i guess it's not quite 20 years yet right we got we got till may so we're we're building up to the to actual 20-year anniversary. I remember going into 1999, and it was like, this is the year of the Phantom Menace and nothing else. When I think back, when people say, like, oh, 1999, it's like, yeah, that was Phantom Menace year. That's all that year was. That's every other thing that happened to me in that year has been wiped away by, by the sands of time, except for Phantom Menace. <laughs> I graduated from college. Who cares? 
Yeah, me too. I think. <laughs> I think that's when it happened. I don't know. I only remember Phantom Menace. I always remember in my big graduation ceremony, I was wearing the wristband for Studio 28 in Grand Rapids to confirm that I had, because you had to leave the stupid paper wristband on. I was taking a shower with my hand over my head, so my Phantom Menace wristband didn't get damaged. I can't remember in, in, our, in our other episodes if I told the story of uh, if our, our friend Richie that he went and waited in line, like, I want to say at least four hours to get tickets. And then later that day, one of our coworkers just went to the theater and got tickets in like five minutes. <laughs> So it was like all these people were in line, but they had so many tickets that you could just show up after everyone from the line was done and get tickets, no problems. That story right there pretty much encapsulates the whole Phantom Menace 1999 experience, really. <laughs> you can wait in line if you want to, but you don't have to. Well, I'm really looking forward to Phantom Menace year. What we're going to do is every single month, we're going to have at least one. Don't don't push us. There may Maybe there'll be a month with four. We don't know. It could happen. At least one episode every month dedicated to The Phantom Menace. We're going to try and have it be like this, where it's the first episode of every month will be dedicated to Phantom Menace, but... There's going to be a lot of things going on in 2019, so we don't we don't want to tie down to too much of anything. Yeah, we might get a little sidetracked towards the end of the year, but we we guarantee at least one a month because it's it's the only right thing to do. What if dreams came true and you could be who you wanted to be? You could do what you wanted to do, and you could help who you wanted to help. What if dreams came true and the world opened up? And you were never, ever afraid. What if dreams came true? But dreams do come true. Don't they? To start off Phantom Menace year, I don't think there's any better way to start it out at the beginning. Than at the beginning? What Phantom Menace early script draft was called. Well, in the beginning stretches way back until, what is it, 94? When Lucas started on the script? There's that famous... Webisode, web doc, all I need is an idea. I drop my kids off at school. Whatever, start writing this dang thing. I don't know what I'm doing. This is the first of November, 1994. Today is my first day of writing the new Star Wars series. I took my kids to school this morning. Uh, my oldest daughter was sick all night. I got no sleep whatsoever. This is my life. This is the hole I live in, the cave I hibernated. I have beautiful, pristine yellow tablets, ready to go. Fresh blocks of pencils. I'm all set. All I need is an idea. Gumballs and Coca-Colas. <laughs> I'm all, I got everything I need. No Hershey bars until he writes two pages. <laughs> That's my reward. <laughs> like, similar to the original Star Wars he spent a lot of time with pre-production and working either because of procrastination or because of coming up with lots of ideas, working on the script, which other than what A New Hope would be the only other time he spent that much time or had that much time, right? Because once with the original trilogy, once they were into the sequels, it was like there was only so much time between movies and same with the uh, other two prequels. Like once Phantom Menace was done... They were right on to Attack of the Clones. So the luxury of spending five years coming up with ideas kind of goes away. Yeah, that's one thing Phantom Menace has that's unique to it, much like A New Hope. And almost kind of like they had with Force Awakens, kind of. And I feel like hopefully after 
episode nine, they will have again for whatever is next. Maybe that's what's going on right now of this period of time. And the future's wide open for Star Wars. And where do we go? They haven't really said much about Ryan Johnson's movies, but he just got done filming his murder mystery, right? Which they filmed in like two days, it feels like. (laughs) He's, I'm sure, editing and in post-production on that. And then after that, for all we know, he's going to be back thinking about his next Star Wars stuff. So not quite Phantom Menace stuff, but exciting stuff to think about. And whatever the heck's going on with Benioff and Weiss, whatever they're doing. And I'm sure all the many other things that we know nothing about. The development of the script for A New Hope, the ideas behind Star Wars, are very well documented. And possibly that's because of what an important thing Star Wars is and how crazy and imaginative and that story is, you know, but there's not a whole lot of information out there about the genesis of the ideas of the prequels. Possibly is that because some of this is some of the old ideas Lucas had in his mysterious notebooks for all those years. We don't know in detail the different roads that the prequels could have gone down like we do, for example, Just a New Hope or even Empire, the Lee Brackett stuff, Jedi, when we talked to Rinsler, some of the roads that movie could have gone down. We don't know that, for example, with like Attack of the Clones and Sith or so much Phantom Menace. We do a little bit with Sith because Rinsler was on board for that. And there is quite a bit of going in depth with the production of that movie. And that, I mean, the script writing for that movie had a much smaller period of time. But since Clones and Phantom Menace kind of never got the full on making of treatment that the other four movies got, maybe that's part of the reason it's just... That information's out there. They're just no one's kind of taken the time to kind of put it together. And you kind of have to get it from various kind of random places, right? Where which we'll get into the the insider's guide and quotes here and there and things from other books. Well, the the ultimate Bible for what could have happened in the original trilogy is the incredible annotated screenplays book. And when we were pulling together information for this episode, I, I couldn't help thinking like how amazing would an annotated Star Wars screenplay for the prequel trilogy be? They would blow everyone's minds. Where People would just be falling out of their chairs, crawling out of their houses, screaming. Maybe that's why they haven't done it. It would be chaos in the streets. Cars crashing on the highway. Lines around the block at the bookstores. The prequel films, like even in the, like you're saying, like the Revenge of the Sith book, like a lot of them were driven by art concepts first. In a, in a similar but different way as the the original trilogy with like some of the Macquarie stuff. Like I feel like a lot of the Macquarie stuff, Lucas would write something, Macquarie would illustrate something, Joe Johnston and stuff. We're almost in the prequel era, at least from what we've seen and read about. You know, Lucas would walk into the room. I need six planets. Go show me what you got. Okay, that's cool. I'll use that. Do you think that made a difference? And that there's not as many, there's not as much info out there on the different stories that could have been told in those films. Yeah, I guess it could be for the fact that really, if you want to go back and see where things changed and what some of the thought process was, I guess looking at the art books, yeah, is kind of a window into that since the art did kind of drive the writing more so maybe in the past. But I still got to think with Phantom Menace because there was so much time and he was kind of half editing existing ideas he had and then adding new things that there's probably a lot of interesting changes that maybe seems small enough at the time to not talk about. But, you know, going back now, 20 years later, it's 
would be interesting to see, you know, who different names and different planets and just little ideas that could have kind of changed how the whole feel of the movie was. He had the new technology at his fingertips where he might have been writing it sometimes being like, how crazy can I get with my imagination? I mean, Jurassic Park in 94 had like just come out. Perhaps his, you know, as he was writing, well, I can get real crazy, you know, and perhaps it got crazier and crazier over time. And that's one thing when we start getting through like the, the first draft, the beginning that we're going to talk about, a lot of it doesn't seem quite as epically insane as The Phantom Menace ended up. It's almost kind of a smaller movie. Would people have responded to this script differently because it isn't quite as wacky? Yeah. It's hard to say, though, because if anyone's still alive now, Last Jedi is kind of a small movie and really doesn't get that wacky. People have issues with that, so I don't know (laughs) what people would have thought about a slightly more character-driven, smaller, intimate Phantom Menace. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered. But it is interesting to think about. It is almost backwards to what you would normally think where, you know, you go big on the script. And then when you try to actually figure out how to make the movie, you kind of pare things back and it gets smaller and a little more grounded. And potentially Phantom Menace somehow worked in the reverse where what he could imagine in his script, once he realized what he could do, it got even crazier than the script and bigger. And was like, well, I can do all this. Then I'm going to do even more and even more and even more. The fact that it's so anticipated allows me the freedom to sort of be creative in the way I'd like to be creative and not have to worry about what people think, you know, because on one level I'm going to get slaughtered (laughs) uh, no matter what I do, and on the other level, you know, some people will like it. But after you make a lot of movies, you understand that that whatever you do, you're going to get trashed on one side and some people are going to love it. This beginning is very interesting because it's basically the same story as what we got on screen. But there's a lot of little details along the way that make huge differences in the overall experience of episode one, which we got to give a shout out to Michael Kaminsky's Secret History of Star Wars. He, on his website, documented this early draft, but he got all of his information from 1999's CD-ROM episode one of an insider's guide, which Gabe, you have it, right? <laughs> I do have it. It uh, it's two CDs from the the golden age of CD-ROMs. Uh, it's pretty cool to have, but it's so old that I think you have to have a computer running like Windows 98, or I think I have an old like little laptop that has Windows. 2000 maybe on it and it was able to run it but it's pretty much a pain in the butt (laughs) to actually put the cd-rom in something and look at what's in it and it's also pretty tedious to go through the script because you can't actually just i don't think you can just bring up the script with the annotations you actually have to go scene by scene it brings up like a little storyboard or some image from the movie has the lines of dialogue and then in another window there's like little pop-ups that that tell you the rough script draft stuff so it's pretty wonderful that someone went through and correlated all this stuff on the secret history of star wars site because yeah it's kind of a pain in the butt to go through the cd-rom so i don't recommend it unless you're very patient and have a really old computer it's interesting to compare this script draft with the art of phantom menace book and the phantom menace illustrated screenplay book and the 
Star Wars Storyboards book that Rinsler put out a few years back, which we'll talk about more as the episode goes on. Because there's little nuggets all throughout all of those that line up with what's in the CD-ROM about the weirdness of the beginning. <laughs> Let's dig in. There's a lot to go over. Let's start at the opening crawl, which is a little different. So the original crawl in the rough draft reads, It is a time of decay in the Republic. The taxation of trade routes to the tiny planet of Utapau is in dispute. Hoping to force a resolution with a blockade of deadly star destroyers, the greedy Federation of Galactic Traders has cut off all shipping and supplies to the small, peaceful planet. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates the alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched a young Jedi Knight to settle the conflict. Similar, but different. Yeah, it's closer to what it ultimately ended up being than initially I would have thought, but... Slightly different enough to be different. <laughs> it says in there, a young Jedi Knight to settle the conflict. In in this version of the script, in a lot of the production art, it's just Obi-Wan. Young Obi-Wan is the only one sent. And Obi-Wan is basically playing the role Qui-Gon was, but there's no apprentice. Obi-Wan is the Qui-Gon of the movie. And age-wise, he's kind of in the middle. He's older than... Padawan Obi-Wan that we ultimately get and younger than maybe grizzled Qui-Gon that we get. So if anything, yeah, he is almost like a mix between the two characters we get ultimately. It's it's so hard to, to imagine because Phantom Menace is, I mean, Phantom Menace and Qui-Gon is freaking Qui-Gon Jinn, like the, the ultimate, you know, and Qui-Gon has become so important in Star Wars overall, the story and the Jedi and the whole thing, but it would have been really kind of interesting just to think of like the Phantom Menace uh, for a lot of the movie being young Obi-Wan Kenobi adventure. Yeah. Cause it's interesting to think about in some respects, I could see where that would potentially maybe be more appealing to people. It kind of ties it more into the original movies. It makes it more familiar. But on the other hand, I think we've talked about one of the reasons I think after 20 years, Phantom Menace is still so awesome to me is because it is so far removed from all the other Star Wars stuff. And basically starting the movie with Qui-Gon and so many people that you don't really know who these people are in a way makes it special that it really is, at least at the beginning, completely new Star Wars. Which I've come to learn in the past 20 years and especially lately we're not like some other Star Wars fans. <laughs> not all Star Wars fans share that same feeling. Yeah. You know, when you talk about the post nine world, you know, you hear people who are just like, I don't know if I'm going to care after the Skywalker saga is done. And I'm like, give me more. Tell me, let's, let's find out about another family. There's a lot, a lot of families in space. So let's hear about them. All. <laughs> let's get real, real weird. Last Jedi wasn't weird enough for me. It was a uh, it was an appetizer, the best appetizer I've ever eaten, but still an appetizer. So we're introduced to the Nemodians, and uh, they're a little bit different, right? Yeah, and this is something that you know we knew from the art books that originally they looked like what the Geonosians ultimately became. They were supposed to be more bug like and very not human, but I think personality wise, they were still kind of the same sort of cowardly business type people 
uh, who are afraid of the Jedi and had droids do a lot of the work for them, right? Because it says in the script that they uh, they had floating projector droids with them, right? <laughs> and they call up Sidious, just like in the movie, who chokes them through the Force. And I guess Sidious quote, Sidious's quote is, You fool, my reach is far greater than any Jedi. Only a Sith can power the Force over such great distance. Hmm. <laughs> Who's who will prove that wrong? Maybe <laughs> George Lucas never would have done anything like the Last Jedi. A Jedi can't—that's crazy. Oh, we need George Lucas back. This is something that's going to come up a lot throughout the beginning, but some of this or a lot of this makes me wonder how much during those Michael Arndt days for the sequel trilogy. Or for episode seven, when Lucas handed over his mysterious binder of ideas, you know, how much of unused prequel stuff was he putting into the early development of the sequel trilogy and how much of those ideas are still kind of floating through what we're getting today because this kind of stuff is going to come up again. Yeah, and it seems like if past experiences any indication like we've said and lots of people have said like nothing ever gets thrown away in star wars we're still getting things based on ralph mccrory sketches from 40 years ago so if if it was ever written on a piece of paper by lucas it's still on a list i'm sure somewhere that people are looking at when they're trying to think of ideas uh i have an idea for a character uh, and uh, usually the character begins, you know, the character doesn't come alive and accept its role, then it uh, metamorphosizes into something else or another kind of character. Or, you know, you can take the various drafts of Star Wars, you can find the central characters. They always exist. They have given different names. They are given different sizes, shapes, ages, and stuff. But the, but the, the core of the character... Uh, is still there and growing. It's just trying to find the right persona to to carry forward that that personality. I think we have to we have to make a point to mention that there's a droid named GTR Seven, right? Who may or may not be named after George Lucas's guitar <laughs> from, from when he took lessons with Linda Ronstadt, maybe. More of his secret dream to be a rock and roll shred guitar player. I would hope it it was a droid that looked like a guitar and only spoke in awesome riffs. Maybe George Lucas wanted to buy a seven string guitar since those are kind of getting popular around that time frame. He was like, oh, if I only had a seven string guitar, I could really shred. What am I going to name this droid? He looks around his little room <laughs> with a seven string guitar. <laughs> So just like in the movie, they order a droid to a droid cannon thing to destroy the Republic cruiser. Obi-Wan senses that. Shortly after that, Amidala calls up and she's on Utapau. But it's a little bit different because she rules over the people of Naboo. So Utapau is Naboo, but the people are called like the Naboo people that live on Utapau. Which that almost feels like a change just to make it easier for people to understand what's going on kind of a thing. And like Theed is called Oxen, I think. I love all this kind of stuff in the early drafts because really it's just like, no, 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 not Oxen. It's going to be called Theed. Totally different, everybody. <laughs> yeah. 
So Amidala and Newt Gunray, they're talking pretty much the same thing as the movie, explains the eventual invasion of the city. So when Obi-Wan gets outside, and pretty similar, he immediately runs into Jar Jar Binks, who in this script talks, he doesn't talk in like the Gungan talk. I don't think that had come about yet. Or at least, yeah, they haven't figured that part out yet. Well, that makes sense because it seems like it's hard enough to write a, a new a story and a script without having to translate it to crazy language, right? Like I would think most people would just write the dialogue first and then go back and turn it to crazy language, uh, turn it into a crazy language. But I don't know. George Lucas is a weird dude, so maybe not. Maybe there's a rough, rough draft where the whole thing's written in in Gungan and then that got converted to English and then back again. So the droids and like the Nemodians, which they're 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 not separatists, they're called the traitors, right? The uh what did it say in the crawl? They called them the uh, Federation of Galactic Traitors, yeah. Which maybe that's a not so subtle play on words, possibly, for this for the separatists. They're traitors. They release uh seeker probes to go find Obi-Wan Kenobi. Kind of similar to what Darth Maul does later in the in what we saw on screen, but it happens way earlier. Obi-Wan and Jar Jar go see Governor Nass. And this scene's a little similar, but a little different, right? Yeah, well, it's it sounds like it was the scene we see with Padme in the actual film where communications get disrupted. But this time it's during Obi-Wan and Governor Nass is just talking, not Padme and... Uh, Panaka, right? And like their protective bubble begins to like break up or something, right? Like, yeah, and fish start coming through the wall, which is not unlike a, a big Christmas movie from 2018. I believe that scene happens verbatim in Aquaman. Just throw that out there. <laughs> so, just like in the movie, Governor Nass gives them a ship, and Jar Jar, just like in the movie, is recruited to kind of go with Obi Wan. I don't think the whole thing of Jar Jar being banished is in the beginning, or is it? I'm not sure. So, like, before they leave, Kenobi encounters one of the Seeker droids, and he cuts it in half. Pretty similar to what Qui-Gon does, and they realize that the Gungan-hidden city has been compromised. And then we go into the big sea pod ride, which is pretty similar to what we saw on screen. There is one interesting part where Jar Jar is freaking out that, like, you know, you can't go through, like, the core and all the stuff and the monsters. And Obi-Wan is talking about having faith in the Force. Jar Jar relates it to the Gungans believing in a Gungan god called Nododo. No or it could be pronounced as Nodudu. <laughs> I, I was trying to be cool. <laughs> but if it's a Gungan god, it's probably no doo doo. Now, what's really crazy too is before you th- think, well, no doo doo never appeared in anything officially Star Wars. Not true. Oh, no doo doo appeared in the outrageously fantastic video game that came out, Yoda's Challenge, <laughs> and was in everyone's favorite Star Wars video game, Galactic Battleground. There were mentions of no do no doo doo in both of those. Did they pronounce it no doo doo or no dodo? There's still mysteries to solve here. How do we? Well, in Star Wars, I'm sure some people pronounce it no dodo, and other people pronounce it no doo doo, and someone probably pronounces it no doo do, and someone pronounces it no doo do, not odo. It's all fair game. You call it Nabu, don't you? Nabu. 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 The invasion of Theed goes on. Obi-Wan reaches the city just before the traitor army 
does, and him and Jar Jar Binks are taken to the palace by the police. Which is a little bit different. Sounds like the whole waterfall thing goes on. There's it doesn't sound like there's like the sneaking around like there is in Phantom Menace. Which I guess like them being them arriving in the city of Oxen before the invasion happens makes more sense, and they kind of can warn the queen and all that stuff. But then you, I don't know. I, I miss the sneaking around. I love that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's an excuse to get an action scene happening early in the movie if there wasn't any. The invasion hadn't happened. The, there's nothing to do but talk. Which that's one thing in the beginning, there's a lot more talking. It's almost like at some point, George Lucas or with with anybody else went through the script and it's like, how can I get a little bit more action in here? How can I spice those things up a little bit? Which we know happens. That's how we got the droid factory. There's too much talking before the big action at the end. We need a little little warm-up action to keep you warmed up. When they arrive at the Queen's Palace, there's an interesting part, though. Where Jar Jar is not allowed inside, which is a theme that goes through the rest of the movie, too, where it's more direct commentary on racism. Yeah, and it's interesting because of all the backlash of saying Jar Jar was racist when there kind of was a idea of there being racial issues between the Gungans and the Naboo actually in the script early on that got kind of toned down. That would have been really interesting if that would have ended up on screen. <laughs> A much more serious Phantom Menace is a, is a very strange thing to think about. Amidala's ship is not in a hangar, but is behind a waterfall. And again, when they all go to get into Amidala's ship, Jar Jar Binks originally is not even allowed in Amidala's ship. And what, is it Obi-Wan that tells the Queen that Jar Jar should be allowed into the Queen's ship? Basically, Obi-Wan argues with Amidala, convinces her that he should be allowed on the ship, but she insists that he's kept with the droids and not with the rest of the crew. Amidala is cold-blooded in the uh, original script, which is a pretty big turnaround because in the in the uh, final film, Amidala is the one hanging out with Jar Jar and cleaning R2. The, the queen ends up in the droid hold. So Amidala's ship, which is interesting, has gun ports. So when they're taking off from Theed, there's still the whole invasion army in space shooting after them but there's like a whole like Millennium falcon style people in gun ports defending the queen's ship yeah it's almost like we get the the tie attack from a new hope style thing here as they escape still all the business going on with the droids repairing the ship still all the business with r2 is the only one left at the end oh and what's crazy to think about is a less Motivated to get wild and new and crazy Lucas, we could have gotten the TIE attack music back while there's Naboo soldiers fighting droid ships as they escape. Like we could have got the scene we ultimately get in uh, Last Jedi or Solo back in 99, which if Lucas was really as lazy as people like to say he is, we that's probably what we would have got. And he... Definitely did not do that. We got something something different. As much as I love that part in The Last Jedi, it comes at the end of the movie and we've earned it. And it's an awesome throwback. I just feel like that would have been out of place in The Phantom Menace. But it would have made people really happy. People would have like sat up and clapped their hands and been like, yay, now we're getting Star Wars. Well, and it pays off in Last Jedi because it's the, it's the Falcon. And it's Chewie and the Falcon and they're back and they're fighting TIE fighters, literally, where... It would have been maybe strange here, but yeah, I totally could have seen you know people cheering, and that would have been a an easy crowd pleasing moment. 
And instead, we just got droids getting massacred until R2 saves the day. We got the Ewok movies of droid stuff, where R2's family is immediately murdered at the beginning of the movie. So Sidious finds out about all of this, and he dispatches Darth Maul, very similar to what we got in the film. They all land on Tatooine. Kenobi dresses up as a moisture farmer, and they head into Mos Espa, because it's the same thing. The hyperdrive is damaged. They don't have enough power to get to Coruscant, so they got to go and find a new hyperdrive. But Panaka, even in the early draft, is classic Panaka, where he says that Jar Jar Binks can go with them to go find a new hyperdrive because he's smelling up the ship. <laughs> He actually made Panaka a nicer guy in the final movie. You didn't think he could be any grouchier, but he was much a much rougher character in the past. They go in and they meet Anakin. As soon as Anakin and Padme meet, Anakin's throwing out that Anakin smooth talker charm right away where he's right away saying, I'm going to marry you someday. You know, he can see things before they happen. It's true. He knows. It's nice to know that Jira was in the the rough draft. You can't take Jira out ever. You take Jira out of the Phantom Menace, you have nothing. Yeah. She's the heart and soul of Phantom Menace. She's the bones. She's the aching bones of Phantom Menace. But it's super interesting, too, that Shmi's last name is not Skywalker. Shmi's last name is Warka. W-A-R-K-A. So what's up with that? That certainly adds a new twist to things. Does that become his Jedi name? He's Skywarka. Like when when he becomes a good pilot, they start calling him Skywarka instead of Warka. And then it just gets simplified down to Skywalker. If they would have stuck with Shmi Warka and Anakin was Anakin Warka, (laughs) would we be talking about episode nine being the end of the Warka trilogy? (laughs) Yeah, maybe at the in the end, George just didn't want to have to deal with explaining how it went from Warka to Skywalker, since the the mail away hologram Anakin figure wasn't it called Anakin Skywalker? There was there's precedent that he had to be Anakin Skywalker at some point. I want to find out in Episode Nine that Ray's parents were actually Warkas, just to mess with people. Hey, maybe they will be Ray Warka. Could happen. <laughs> Your family, Mister and Missus Warka. They're in a ditch in Popper's grave. She finds the tombstone. Warka. Whistle while you warka. Oh, so Anakin introduces C-3PO, who in this early version, his his voice box isn't installed yet. So the whole movie C-3PO never talks. <laughs> if only they had made Anthony Daniels get in the suit for a whole movie and not let him talk. As much as I like uncovered 3PO, the idea of them making him go in the suit and not even get speaking lines kind of is kind of appealing just for its cruelty, I think, would be really funny. I wonder if at one time that's the way it was. And it's like, hey, Anthony Daniels, we're going to have you back. But guess what? You don't talk in this movie. <laughs> we know you're up for for anything, 3PO. But uh, we, yeah, he's no lines. He doesn't talk yet. So they get a message from Seal Bibble, kind of just like in the movie but it's interesting that this message from seal bibble which also i like that seal bibble was always in the phantom menace you can't take bibble out just like jira but this message from bibble suggests much more clearly of a plot between the republic and the traitor army 
It says Obi-Wan's obviously not present in the Queen's Royal Starship when Bibble sends a distress hologram. Amidala does send a message in response. And then when Panaka tells Obi-Wan this, the Jedi says the transmission could be traced. Panaka insists the traders don't have that long-distance tracking, but Obi-Wan responds with the Republic does. But that would have been really interesting to to hint early on that there's a greater, like a conspiracy going on. And I guess that's a thing, like, in so much of this early draft, it's kind of right in your face more. Yeah, and it seems like in the end, maybe the connection, they were trying to, it was more visual than being explained with, you know, all the scenes. We get a, well, we get a scene of Sidious on Coruscant. So that should give you a hint. (laughs) That maybe there's some Republic stuff going on without them having to explicitly say it. Or at least that was the thought behind not explicitly stating it, which maybe would have made it clearer for, for some people. I don't know. Well, then after that, we cut to Sidious and Maul. And upon seeing Maul off to Tatooine, Sidious says to Maul, may the Force be with you. They still are all about the Force, too. That's true. They use the Force. So like, why can't a Sith say, may the Force be with you? You know, George Lucas is getting wild. Shmiza Warka, Sith are saying, may the force be with you. You know, it's a whole new thing. Yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised at this point we didn't get Snoke saying, may the force be with you to Kylo. Ooh, that would have really sent people over the edge. Maybe he did at one point and they cut it out. I don't know. It seems a very Snoke thing to say. It would have been cool Snoke saying it like sarcastically, like, oh, well, may the force be with you. Like, ooh, man, that's cold blooded Snoke. <laughs> So then shortly after all this, we get to the pod race. Similar deal, going to win Anakin's freedom and all that. One big difference with the pod race is Jabba the Hutt is the announcer for the pod race. There's no two-headed foad and bead. It's just Jabba doing all the announcing. Can you even imagine what that would have been like? I think people would have probably thrown up from all the bass, <laughs> like coming through the subwoofers, because there would have been like all the bass from the race cars and then Jabba's super deep Vin Diesel voice soothing everybody. I don't know. That would have been crazy. I would have been all right with that, I think. And it's probably one of those moments, too, where as much as George Lucas like is all about just getting crazy, Maybe he figured a whole scene with no music and just sound effects and then no one speaking English, just Hatties might have been a little too a little too crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the world hadn't seen Aquaman yet, so they weren't quite ready. Just before the Padre, there's a great moment where Padme says to Obi-Wan, you look like you're trying to solve the problems of the universe. And Obi-Wan has a great line, only our own, but maybe they will become the problems of the universe. I don't know. Deep thoughts. Well, you know, also that all just makes me miss Qui-Gon because Qui-Gon was able to pull off a lot of like Alec Guinness where Qui-Gon could just make faces and we could spend the next 20 years analyzing Qui-Gon's faces of him moving his eyebrows around and ooh, does that mean that he knows, you know? (laughs) Oh, one interesting part I think we, we missed is one of the early on when they're talking to Shmi, Shmi's actually giving out some like Jedi advice and telling uh, Anakin to clear your mind and you will see the pattern. You are distracted and maybe not as reflective as you should be. Oh, no, she says that to Obi-Wan, actually. When I read that, that tripped me out, too, because I was like, if we would have gotten that on screen, we would have spent the next 20 years saying that Shmi Warka was a Jedi. Well, yeah, because if anything, it kind of I don't think we ever even thought, oh, did Shmi maybe have the force or was she using the force or and that's how Anakin got it. I guess we've kind of 
it wasn't really hinted to in the movie. And I don't think I ever really thought about that. No, we're given nothing to even plant that thought in our heads. Soonish me starts talking about, you know, I carried him, I raised him, I don't know what happened. You know, like they were just like, well, Shmi does not have the force. But did she? Maybe that's how uh, Anakin could talk to her through the force and know to come rescue her. I mean, yeah, Anakin did hear her through the force. Was it a force bomb? Much like Luke and Leia? Maybe that was an early, early thoughts. Don't look back before you go. Know the truth. Learn to let go. Don't look back before you go. Before you leave me. Along with kind of hinting at Shmi being a little bit into the force here, the uh, original dialogue, um, I think when Anakin's leaving, she says, son, it is time for you to let go, to give me up. I cannot travel this path with you. I've told you, life is a continual transition. You cannot hold time still, stop the sunrise, sunset, or the flow of the force. Every moment, you must let go something. Um, And then Anakin's like, but Watto's angry, mom, you're in danger. So again, she's kind of throwing out some some Jedi wisdom, kind of similar to uh, Jin's mom in a way, of maybe she's not a Jedi, but she's kind of a follower of the Force more so in this than just kind of a person that happens to have a child who has powers she doesn't understand. Yeah, that was definitely a decision to tone down Shmi Warka's Force talk, which is pretty interesting. Oh, and they do actually have the scene where Watto removes the chip that will blow him up. I'm glad that was put in there because I've always thought about that. I got the sense in Phantom Menace that it was just kind of like deactivated. I, I, I honestly, even to this day, kept waiting for the scene where that would pay off. And I maybe it's just because I watched Running Man too many times when I was a kid. But I just imagined at some point something was going to happen and part of Anakin was going to explode because of the because of the bomb inside them. So does he still have his slave chip when he's Darth Vader? Depending on if unless it was in his arms and legs, maybe. <laughs> or maybe it was, yeah, maybe it was in his leg. And when he went in the lava, it just kind of exploded and we didn't think about it. All slaves have a transmitter placed inside their body somewhere. I've been working on a scanner to try and locate mine. Any attempt to escape. And they blow you up. So after that, Obi-Wan and Darth Maul have their duel in the desert instead of Qui-Gon and Darth Maul, of course. And this fight is kind of insane, right? Yeah, there's a lot more going on in the in the script version, right, than ends up on film. So they're like throwing things and moving to the point of being almost invisible, like vibrating. And But what's cool is if you go, this is one of the things, if you go into the storyboards book, there's some notes from, I think, Ian McKegg about how they did the first storyboards of this and lucas kept telling him to make it faster and more efficient and they ultimately like were pulling storyboards away and it was got down to oh and it was it like five or six storyboards like it got cut really short so that it felt super fast so as much crazier as it is in the script the ultimate goal was for it to feel extremely fast which i guess is kind of what it says here that um and we did get the vibrating to the point of becoming invisible at the beginning of the movie when they run from the uh droidicas which is still crazy to me how just over the top that scene is and we never really got jedis running that fast again other than that one scene maybe when jj ties all the movies together maybe we'll get to see ray or uh 
Kylo running so fast they disappear. In episode nine, that's going to be the shout out to the 20th anniversary of the Phantom Menace. Kylo is going to run extremely fast. <laughs> hey, everybody, watch me. Look what I can do. He spent the time between eight and nine just winning races. <laughs> winning the first order Olympics. What medal did you get, Hawks? I got a gold for running really fast. His, his episode nine costume just has all these gold medals on it. He's wearing a headband and ru- running shorts. Uh, race the past. Race it if you have to. So after that, pretty much we head to Coruscant and we meet Qui-Gon Jinn, finally. And not they don't say too much about Qui-Gon. Yeah, he's there on the landing platform with Palpatine and Valorum. His name is spelled a little bit different. It's just one word, Qui-Gon Jinn. Obi-Wan says he is my mentor and a good friend. So he's still like Obi-Wan's master. He's not around for the rest of the movie. He's just kind of there. He's Obi-Wan's buddy and his mentor. Well, which makes sense if Obi-Wan is presented as an older Jedi in his 30s. Like, I mean, that's kind of consistent with what we got in the prequels of by the time, you know, a Jedi was that age, he would be he wouldn't have his master with him anymore. But they would still probably be friends and hanging out from time to time. Kind of like Obi-Wan and Anakin are in uh, in the Clone Wars cartoon or Revenge of the Sith. So we go to the Jedi Council and the Jedi Council only has three people on it yoda mace windu and of course moondy the the other pillar of phantom menace you got jira you got seal bibble and you have kiati moondy his his giant head is just holding up the whole movie there's a weird senate scene which is a little bit different and it gets right into phantom menace business where amidala decides that she's gonna retake Utapau. and we still have a malastare senator who uh, wants to evoke the Mon order. Hey, Mon! I also like that the, the microphone droid, camera droids, kind of were there from the beginning. Again, you cannot take out the most important stuff in the Phantom <laughs> After we get done with the whole Senate scene, they head back to Utapau. The blockade is in place. And there's an interesting scene. They have to come out of light speed between the blockade ships and the planet. And Panaka and Rick Oli, who's also in this early draft, are arguing that it's impossible. And the calculations, according to Rick Oli, are too infinite for even the most advanced computer. So Obi-Wan is like, hey, Anakin, your connection to the Force will enable you to sense the proper moment to come out of light speed. So Anakin takes the co-pilot seat, straps himself in, and Obi-Wan says, think of yourself racing. Take the controls. We're headed towards a planet. Concentrate. Stop right before the surface. So Anakin closes his eyes, and the starship exits light speed just above the surface of the planet, and they fly directly into the Utapau atmosphere. Where have we seen that before? (laughs) (laughs) Again, that's a little something, an unused concept that has shown up again fairly recently. Maybe when you're working on a Star Wars movie and you get lunch, they give you fortune cookies, and in the fortune cookies are just... Random lines from early George Lucas drafts. <laughs> and one day at lunch, J.J. Abrams opened his fortune cookie and it and it talked about how Anakin used the force to exit light speed right above the surface of the planet. I, I just would not be surprised at all if in that early, like I was saying, like in that early development for episode seven, 
if Lucas was like, I had all these ideas for Phantom Menace that were kind of cool stuff that I didn't eventually use, and we could use them in this new movie. You can totally see that, that there's, it's like a, uh, just a list. Hey, here's a list of cool things that I wasn't able to use yet. Because he had those lists in the, uh, in like the original trilogy kind of drafts and stuff, like just lists of names and lists of scenarios and, and cool things that, yeah, would get plugged into the script if they made sense. And if they didn't, they'd go back in the list. And they're still showing up. I, I, I bet you there'll be stuff in nine. And it's another one of those, man, that's so stupid in Force Awakens. George Lucas would have never done that. <laughs> you know, you evolve it with various scenes and various moments. And, and when you're creating something like that, it, it, the story itself takes over and the characters take over. And they begin to tell the story apart from what you're doing. You know, and you kind of go with it. And you have to go with it. And it sends you down some very funny paths. Then you have to figure out how to break that apart and put the puzzle back together so it makes sense and is cohesive. Uh, but that's the adventure of writing, is the fact that you're not sure where it's going to go. Boss Nass joins forces with the Naboo to stop the, the traitor army. We're getting into the whole the battle of Naboo, which in here, the battle of Utapau. And there's a cool moment in here where to knock out the droid army, Anakin and R2 sneak into a droid storage area. R2-D2 removes a chip from a droid head located in the main controls. And R2 lights flares for a distraction while Anakin sneaks in to like a hangar that's filled with Naboo fighters and a whole bunch of traitor freighters that look just like, according to the script, the Millennium Falcon. So according to this beginning script, the Corellian cruiser that we know as the Millennium Falcon originally was the freighter of the traitor army. So we, we would have maybe seen... Newt Gunray riding in the a Millennium Falcon. That would have changed things a little bit. That that may have undid all the cheers from the tie attack moment at the beginning of the film. <laughs> if Newt Gunray and Rune Hako were flying the Millennium Falcon, I don't know. They would have got some cheers from me. Anakin and R2 are caught, but Anakin jumps on a battle droid and causes like a ricochet effect. Obi-Wan shows up. So does Darth Maul. And the big battle begins. Meanwhile, Anakin, Padme, and R2 all get into, like, a two-person ship and go up into space to knock out, like, the droid control ship. Anakin is flying while Padme gets in a gun port on this ship. When I was reading this, it instantly reminded me of the scene in Force Awakens with Finn in the gun port and Rey flying, where the person with the Force is doing the flying the other person is in the gun port. Very, very similar. There's the big fight, and Qui-Gon, we barely knew you. Qui-Gon is killed by Darth Maul. Now, this relates to something that's in the storyboard book, right? I'm glad I got the storyboard books for Christmas because I had never seen this before. And this is just in the foreword from J.W. Rinsler. There's a paragraph about how the only thing missing in the Phantom Menace storyboards was the deaths of Qui-Gon Jinn and Darth Maul. And he says this may be because for a long while, as Lucas wrote the script, the story was different. Obi-Wan Kenobi was the older one, the master, and Qui-Gon Jinn was the Padawan. So this is even a different arrangement than what we're seeing from the Insider's Guide. And it gets crazier because, and the two would argue, because while Obi-Wan trusted his instincts, his apprentice Qui-Gon wanted to do everything by the book, so kind of a switch in personality. But the twist is, in the early story, 
Qui-Gon watches Maul kill Obi-Wan, goes berserk, uses the dark side to help him exterminate Darth Maul. And as he cradles his dying master, Qui-Gon promises to take on Obi-Wan's quest and to take on his master's name. What? And according to Ian McKaig, that's why Qui-Gon Jinn would say in episode four, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Obi-Wan. Now, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. A long time. That's just nuts. Hello there. What's up with that? What? What's up with that? What? So let's back up here. Let's back up. If this would have been in the movie, Obi-Wan actually was... Is his name was Qui-Gon, but then through episode two and three, Qui-Gon would be called Obi-Wan Kenobi. After his fallen master. So all the stuff in episode four belongs to someone named Ben Kenobi. Tarkin being like, Obi-Wan Kenobi. It still would kind of make sense, but it would be really weird to do that. And it's a pretty hardcore twist to throw in the first movie getting back in. Because, yeah, then he's his real name's Qui-Gon Jinn. He goes by Obi-Wan, and he also goes by Ben Kenobi. Yeah, it gets a little... So maybe that wasn't in there too long. <laughs> Somebody stepped in. Yeah. George, you can't do that. That's too weird. Oh, maybe maybe, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got you to tone something down. Phantom Menace, it's all about duality. You don't know who's who, what's what. Well, that's true. That that does fit the theme. So it seems I mean, it makes it even more plausible that that was definitely in there at some point. Man, yeah, that would have uh, blew people's minds. And I don't know in a good way or not. It's like people are mad enough that Luke doesn't act like they think. What if all these years Obi-Wan wasn't really Obi-Wan? <laughs> George Lucas would never do. <laughs> Madness. Well, in the beginning script, I like uh, when Obi-Wan does kill Darth Maul. He says, learn not, live not, my master always says. <laughs> I would have loved that in The Phantom Menace. As Darth Maul's two parts fall down that tube, learn not, live not, my master always says. <laughs> well, you know, you can, you can bring that back. <laughs> That's a really good cup of coffee, Jason. Learn not, live not, my master always says. Is it too late to start a, a petition to have Ray say that? I, I, I don't think Kylo Ren's getting cut in half. And I don't think that's going to, uh, like we said, I don't think it's going to end in anything close to like a big battle or a test of strength or anything. But can we just find some way for Ray to say that? <laughs> yeah. Live not, live not. Luke always said. And then Luke's ghost shows up and winks. <laughs> so we cut back into space. And what's going on out there? Well, Anakin and Padme in their ship, uh, they spot the sh battleship they think is the uh, the command ship. And Padme, as gunner, blows the ship up. So she is the hero of the battle that blows the ship up, not Anakin. Anakin is just flying. <laughs> that would have really made for some interesting conversations back in 1999. Yeah, I don't, it would be pretty cool, though. But, I mean, she still gets she still saves the day and captures the Viceroy and, I think... It fits the story a little more that she's the she's dealing with the politicians in a way, even if it means aggressive negotiations and letting Anakin be the pilot kind of fits in a little more with the later movies. Yeah, it's interesting that he was where Lucas's mind was even back in in the late 90s. And it's very Leia where she's the one actually getting things done. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
right. in the not in the force kind of way, but in battles, you know, she's the one picking up the blaster and saving everyone. <laughs> but I don't know that would have that would have I think added an interesting twist to their relationship too. That Anakin, as much as he already thought he was going to marry her, I'm sure getting to see Padme be the uh, badass as opposed to just hearing about it later would have just added to his dreams. And it would have added a, some interesting dimensions to Padme in episodes two and three, where you know the Clone Wars did a lot to give Padme more character, more story that maybe she didn't have in the prequel films. Which, the, which the, you know, as much as I love the films and I love Padme, the films did need more Padme. Yeah, they could. You're, there's always room for more Padme, and yeah, she never really got any spaceship action other than in the forces of destiny so it would have been and in some of the comics so yeah it would have been cool to get to see her flying around on a ship shooting at stuff instead of just riding on a, a reek joking aside that we kind of get that in attack of the clones with the two of them riding the reek he's piloting the reek and she's the gunner so i mean it's still there just they waited, waited a movie and it's a rhinoceros alien instead of a spaceship there are things i cannot do I cannot watch while people suffer. I cannot sit when something must be done. I cannot judge those who are different. There are things I cannot do. Run. Hide. Ignore. There are things I cannot do. But there are certainly things I will do. So they, the council's going to train Anakin. There's a great scene where Anakin kneels before them and they all come in to touch his forehead that signifies that you will now be trained as a Jedi, which makes total sense to me. We still have Qui-Gon's funeral, which would have been weird because we'd only been in the movie for about 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so. And based on the other thing, it was potentially not even (laughs) Qui-Gon. It was still, it was the real Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan Kenobi's funeral right in the end of episode one. People would have reacted very well to that. Yeah, what if the it's it was bad enough that the uh, soundtrack had Qui Gon's noble end? If it said Obi Wan's noble end, <laughs> people would just be bursting into flames. Would just be pe- burning people walking around everywhere. What's I don't know what's going on. Think about this, people. I'm giving you an old Lucas head scratcher. Yeah. So we still have the parade at the end, but kind of a neat thing they mentioned in the parade that Newt Gunray and Rune Hako are there like in chains watching the parade. Oh, and there's no globe of peace. That was the that was the the glowing cherry on top of the movie at the end. Once all the the frosting and whipped cream was there, so that's kind of what's going on in the early draft of the Phantom Menace. I mean, like we were saying, it, it at its core, it's the same story, but it could have gone down some crazy roads. Yeah, and just thinking about, I mean, basically, Attack of the Clones, Obi Wan, right from the beginning, instead of kind of waiting and i wonder if potentially i mean i guess maybe he didn't think about the 10-year gap until you know after it was done like potentially maybe there wouldn't have been as much time between phantom menace and attack of the clones if everyone was kind of slightly older at the beginning or we would have gotten an even older obi-wan in clones and sith yeah maybe the end of sith originally was much closer to the beginning of a new hope which, you know, could baby Luke and Leia have been around at one time during Sith? Because you still got to have 18 years in there. I don't know. But as always, yeah, it's fascinating to go back and see what could have been and what 
is the same and what's different and how much Star Wars ideas never die and they always come back and chances are there's it was Lucas's idea. <laughs> well, I encourage all of our listeners to go check out the Secret History of Star Wars thing on the beginning. There's a lot of stuff we didn't have time to go over. We'll put the link to the the article in the show notes and I don't know. Check us out and let us know what you think. What what stood out to you in the beginning. And if you're brave and have an old computer, pick up the episode one uh, insider's guide and read it right from the tap. Starts with me sitting here doodling in my little binder, but it ends up with a couple thousand people working together in a very, very intense, emotional, creative way to pull it off. And, you know, it goes from, you know, my nannies to the producers to the, the camera crews uh, to ILM. I mean, it's all over here. It's just a dream. It's just a kind of a, a thing that I can sit here and do and say, wouldn't it be great if? And then pounding that into reality takes a huge amount of effort. actor and creature performer details from a few of these Star Wars movies set in a galaxy far, far away. And you're listening to Blast Points Podcast with Jason and Gabe. May the force be with you. And these... Last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. So that wraps up our first installment of Phantom Menace Year. Like we said, it's going to be a monthly, at least once a month tradition where we're going to be dedicating one episode every month through 2019 to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Phantom Menace. And where are we going to go next to? Who knows? Maybe we know. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe we know. Maybe we don't know. Maybe we'll change our mind. Could happen. Maybe, you know, just like Phantom Menace is duality. Maybe we'll say one thing and it's going to be something different. Symbiosis. But like we say every single week, leave us an iTunes review. If you listen on an Apple something or other, it helps everything out. If you write something cool, we will read it on an upcoming show. We've got a couple that we need to catch up on, which we I think we'll have time soon to catch up on iTunes reviews. And after that, don't forget to check out BlastPointsPodcast.com. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can sign up for the Blast Points Super Chill Group and interact with all the Blast Points super fans. And new with 2019, uh, we have a Patreon now. So if you want to help out the show, go ahead and uh, do that. And if not, we'll still be here every week with uh, cool stuff. There's a link to, to, to catch up at the Patreon on the website. We've got some exclusive things you can listen to on Patreon. You want to hear us talking about Aquaman? That's on there. <laughs> Force Awakens commentary. 
It's on the Patreon. So if you want to head over there and sign up for all that, dude, check it out. There's some fun stuff that we'll be adding to that over time. But that about wraps up episode 153, the early draft of The Phantom Menace. We'll be back next week with more craziness, more fun. We're happy to be back. Holiday break is over. Yeah, thanks for being patient. It was a nice break, but we're back and we're ready for business. So we'll see you in a week. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. Closer to what I uh, am putting down on the page and what I imagine things to be like. Part of it, I think, is age. When I was young, I had ambitions for something to be brilliant, and and uh, when it came less than brilliant, I was very upset about it. Who knows? I mean, maybe it's better that way. Uh, the the things that have come out that came out exactly the way I wanted them to come out have not been very successful. <laughs> May the force be with all.